Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe. Happy International Women's Day, Jules. Oh, thank you so much. Happy International Women's Day to you too. I said to my husband last week, have you done anything nice for me for International Women's Day? And he was like, is that a thing that we're doing now? And I was like, yeah, I think, I think it might be. I was like to my husband, oh, you haven't even said happy International Women's Day to me. <laughs> but I didn't even get it said to me. And he said, when's International Men's Day? Oh, that's really bad. That's no, poor no. form. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, hopefully that was a joke, right? Oh, yeah. God, Charles doesn't say oh. that to me. Um, I don't actually know when International Men's Day is off the top of my head, but in my defense, I also don't always know when International Women's Day is. I think men's is November, women's is March. and But every day is International Men's Day, so it's all good. And also I feel like with International Men's Day, they've missed a trick on the messaging because obviously there are definitely things that are important to, like mental health is such a huge killer of men or prostate cancer if you attached it to the things that men genuinely struggle with I would have much more time for International Men's Day because International Women's Day always becomes like about pay equity freedom to work you know sexual assault awareness things like that so find your messaging for International Men's Day and run with that because they're apples and oranges right that's the saying Oh, they're definitely apples and oranges. And yeah, and I I agree with you. Like I'm in a women's network. So obviously I know it's International Women's Day. (laughs) But usually it would just creep up on you. Uh Uh-huh, totally. And you wouldn't even necessarily know that it's happening. Um, But guys, obviously, and we've been talking about this for a few weeks, but obviously Harry and Meghan's Oprah interview has been aired, right? So we're going to be talking about that for this episode. So buckle up. Buckle up. And if this is not a topic of interest to you, this podcast may be uninteresting for you. This is like a trigger warning if you don't like Meghan and Harry, because this is now a Meghan and Harry stan account, basically. Yeah, pretty much. I don't know where to begin. Like, I honestly thought, actually, no, I do know where to begin, because there's one thing that I want to say before we dive into this. And that is, Oprah was calling this her best ever interview. And... She is just unparalleled. There's a podcast that I listen to sometimes called Show Your Work. And basically the two women who host that podcast talk about things from a production angle because they work in the media space. And they always say, even with the the Michael Jackson Leaving Neverland documentary, I think that's what it was called. You know, they did a really compelling piece about Oprah is so thoughtful about how she positions herself, what angle the seats are at. When she's in front of a live studio audience, when does she turn to the audience? When does she turn to the interviewee? This was a lesson in how to conduct a great interview because she interrupted at the right times. She drew them out at the right times. She didn't speak at the right times. Absolutely. And what I liked about the interviews, I felt that Oprah did challenge them on some things. So, you know, when Megan was saying, yeah, I really didn't know much about the royal family. Oprah was like, you know about the royal family. You know, you know about the British royal family. So I liked how she challenged them there. And then also when Harry was saying how he was basically trapped. 
Um, oh, not having that. <laughs> Oprah's like, oh, you were trapped, really? <laughs> Growing up in palaces with you life know. privilege. Oh, crazy. You felt trapped. Yeah. Um, and of course, you can feel trapped, right? So I'm not taking away from what Harry was saying, but I thought I liked the balance of the interview in that way. Mm-hmm. I totally agree because also I think in an instance like that, when one is being challenged, when she challenged Harry specifically, it forced him to clarify. And it forced them to say, I felt trapped by the institution. Yeah. And that is an important clarifier. That is an important kind of extension of what you're actually saying. She just, and obviously she's got a lengthy career behind her, so it's no mistake. But that is such an example of honing and refining your talent. But also, even when Oprah did challenge, it was not from an emotional place, really. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like she was imposing her own ideas. And before we get into the interview, I think it would be good to kind of talk about the lead up to the interview and what's been going on in the UK. I was watching Good Morning Britain this morning because I was like, let me see what Piers is saying about this, right? So we tune into Good Morning Britain and Piers Morgan hates Meghan hates her so emotional about it and I was thinking why is this guy so emotional about it I don't really understand and then you know somebody told me that basically he wasn't invited to the royal wedding and before that he was fine with them and then after that it was like he was out to get them he has not made peace with that and the thing is what came through so much throughout the interview so to be clear because what's also been doing the rounds at the moment has been a YouTube clip where four royal commentators were asked to speak on the Harry and Meghan interview with Oprah. The gag kind of being that the interview hadn't aired, they didn't know what was going to be discussed in the interview, but it demonstrates how people are happy to lie about, in this instance, specifically Harry and Meghan. But my husband and I watched the clip and he kept saying afterwards, I feel like I'm through the looking glass. This is making me question so much media rhetoric that I just absorb and accept. So you've got Ingrid Seward, one of these commentators, who's literally like, what was so apparent is that from beginning to end of this interview, Megan was acting. She was lying through her teeth. You don't know what's been discussed. So to be clear, Jules and I have both watched the episode. We've watched the interview all the way through. This isn't speculative because we are actually recording this before it's been aired in the UK, but um, we found a way to watch it online. So we are up to speed. I don't know why I'm in perpetual shock. Is it like a denial? Because it's not surprising. I think obviously it was crazy because it was so obvious, but it was not completely unsurprising, if that makes sense. I could not agree with that more. And I think one thing that I'm surprised about, and I've been talking about this nonstop, I've been talking about it with you. My husband is sick of hearing me talk about it. And I keep trying to shoehorn it into conversations with other people because what has surprised me is that none of those royal commentators now have egg on their face. No one's discussing the fact that they were clearly talking nonsense. I think that's an important point. And I was speaking about this with someone. And I think my general kind of view now is that the UK doesn't actually support Harry on this. So when it comes out that, oh, you know, these are lies, etc., that you, you were literally lying because you hadn't watched the interview, but you were giving your point of view on the interview. British people don't seem to have a problem with that. The yes. way Piers behaved on Good Morning Britain this morning, 
it was crazy. Like we know that he's like a bit of a bully. So he's always bullying his co-host, was completely shutting her down today. You had Shaka Khan being interviewed. You had Trisha Goddard on the panel and then a royal commentator and then, you know, someone else. And Shaka Khan, you could see, like she was, you know, when you were like flabbergasted, like there were things that Piers were saying and like she was completely flabbergasted. And what was great about Trisha, do you know Trisha? I actually do know Trisha, but I've also seen Trisha quite a lot in the past few days, very active on social media. So I'm, I've had okay. a watch it, basically. Okay, cool. So Trisha was there and I hadn't seen Trisha for years. Trisha nailed it, right? Absolutely nailed it. And what was really uncomfortable, because one of the shocking things that come out of the interview, I guess, is when, you know, Harry and Meghan said that someone in the royal family was concerned about Archie's skin tone or what would the skin tone of their baby be? And, you know, Trisha was saying, you know, this is unacceptable a lot of the vitriol towards Megan is because of her race. And then Piers was like, oh, no, no, no. We don't know the context of that conversation. And then Trisha basically said, there's no context that that conversation would be okay. And also, you are not an expert on racism, Piers. You can talk about anything else. But when it comes to this topic, I'm better placed to give my input into what racism is, right? And you rarely see someone kind of challenge Piers and it's like, checkmate, checkmate, <laughs> checkmate. Mm-hmm. Like she did such a good job, especially on a topic that I'm sure is personal to her. Totally. Now, obviously the repast here is like, had they watched the interview in its entirety? You would like to think, yes. That said, obviously it's airing on ITV today in the UK and Good Morning Britain is on ITV, right? So realistically, Piers and Susanna Reid are not supposed to have pipped their home channel to the post and said yeah no I just streamed it illegally online so as far as we the public are concerned Piers Morgan has not watched this all the way through and I saw something that he had put on his Instagram the other day where he had a picture of Wallace Simpson and Meghan Markle side by side and it was like maybe it's time we stopped allowing our princes to marry American women and you know I want to jump into the actual interview itself just for a moment because there were points in that interview which was super, super emotional, super emotive. Most specifically, I am thinking of when Meghan Markle talks about feeling genuinely suicidal when the press attacks were at their peak. And I think mental health is something that is often tricky for us to talk about. I think we often think that we've made great steps. And actually, when when we're faced with the reality of these kind of situations, we find out that we're actually not as progressive as we think we are. She spoke about feeling genuinely suicidal, thinking that it would be easier for everyone if she just wasn't alive anymore because the bullying was so relentless. And I've had kind of at various points in my life, I've had struggles with my own mental health and I've struggled a couple of times with quite serious depression. I remember one of those times trying to talk to my now husband about it because he was just trying to understand And being in such a dark place, and I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, being in such a dark place that I thought that if I actually told him the full extent of how I was feeling, that he would be infected. And what happens, I think, a lot of the time with depression is that you think how you feel is reality and that everyone who is not in your dark place has got kind of blinkers on 
and that it's a privilege to have those blinkers on, if you tell them the truth, they will be in the same place as you. It doesn't, it's not like a dilution that you'll feel better if you talk about it. You'll feel worse because you'll have dragged them down with you. And when she was talking about being scared to be on her own because of what she thought she might do, that was horrifying. I cannot imagine the trauma of that for Harry as well as for Meghan. Yeah, I think for me, that was definitely one of the parts of the interview that was really shocking. The challenge you have with the royal family as an institution is that your feelings are subordinate to the institution. So, you know, if we watch The Crown and, you know, Harry was saying it as well, we've all been through it. Right. You're not the only one walking around with mental health issues. Who are you? And you came Mm. off the street. So I could see how people could be desensitized to that. There's a couple of things at play. You have come off the street and you're in the royal family. So you should actually be so happy that we even allowed you into this space. And what you think you're so good that you're not going to have some mental health issues. We all have mental health issues. Yeah. You know, that is the reality of it. It's kind of seen as part and parcel of the job. Based on what we've seen, you know, in The Crown, there is a level of sacrifice and there is a level of suffering that is seen as part and parcel of the job. It was fascinating to me to see how much Harry and Meghan respect the Queen. I mean, obviously, the tea was piping. No, but genuinely, I did feel like so much of the narrative in the press has been William and Kate versus Meghan and Harry. And I thought it was interesting and poignant. And I'm going to get to this in more detail in just a second. But when Meghan herself said, you can like me and not hate Kate and vice versa. You know, we are two people on a spectrum, essentially. Charles really came out as the bad guy here, right? And that's the irony of it, or not the irony, but you would think that Charles couldn't fall any further. You know, after watching The Crown, you would think this guy cannot fall any further. And after that interview, I was like, wow, after my father stopped taking my calls. Really, Charles? Charles that fought tooth and nail to marry Camilla. So we know you have passion and we know that you fight, but you are not fighting for your own child. You are literally not fighting for your youngest son. It is insane and also what's been so fascinating is that there's been all of these stories being drip fed right about how Charles was very accommodating he actually pushed for the half in half out option he was happy for them to to take a step back but continue to be working royals Charles is heartbroken oh no Charles is ruthless Charles is more ruthless than William is and this is coming straight from Harry's mouth Yeah, so we already knew that Charles was ruthless, you know, in that he moved his new wife in 10 minutes from his mistress, you know, and we saw everything that Diana went through. We were like, wow, Charles is really ruthless. But what is very, um, I think for me, what was so contrasting is that it looks like people like Charles are really stuck in their ways. So it doesn't look like there's been any growth since what happened to Princess Diana, Whereas if you look at someone like Harry, you know, and, you know, we've said it on the podcast before, like Harry has made a lot of mistakes, you know, when it comes to race, right? Harry wearing Nazi costumes as fancy dress. So 
we are not here putting Harry on a pedestal. But what I will always give people credit for is their growth. And, you know, when you hear Harry speak, when you hear Harry acknowledge that, you know, look at what my mother went through and then add race as a factor. He should have thrown in class too, right? But the fact that it's so matter of fact to them, it's so clear to them, it's so clear to Harry. Like Harry is not trying to run away from the fact that race has played such a big role in how his wife was treated and then how his son could potentially be treated. I thought, you know, well done, because a lot of people do not change their opinions, even if they have different information in front of them. And it seems like Harry has really grown. You know, he said, I didn't know what my progressions were. I didn't know anything about this stuff. And just because you're in an interracial relationship does not mean that you are aware of these things. You can actually be in an interracial relationship and be suffering in silence because your partner doesn't get what you're talking about and there's no room for you to express yourself in that way in your relationship. And I just thought, wow, Harry, you're grown up. Yeah, I like that point. And I like that point about growing up. I think also, you know, when we talk about Harry's growth, and the Nazi costume, there is no excuse for that, right? But there's context for that. And the theme of this fancy dress party, it was colonialists. And I don't think that that makes it okay. But I actually think that it gives context for the type of institution that he grew up in. Because who thinks that colonialist is an appropriate theme for a party anyway so when you take it in that context to have grown up and been like yeah well what do you mean it's a colonialist theme look at my brother William literally being carried in Tuvalu right by black people on this throne while he sits there wearing his sunglasses and his suit his journey is almost even more impressive as a result because there was nothing in place for him to accept the education that Megan obviously gave him yeah, that's such an important point. You know, when you you were saying there's a context, I was thinking, whoa, 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 where are we going with that? <laughs> and you landed on such a great point in the sense that there there is no reason for Harry to have had growth in that area. There's absolutely no reason. There's no precedent for it. He didn't grow up in an environment where that's required. He is so privileged. It is not it doesn't make any difference to him to see that, to acknowledge that. And I think it's great when you have a relationship that can help you grow in that way. That's just me, right? Obviously, I don't know them personally, but we can sort of see his his trajectory. And that was incredibly positive. Yeah. And I think, you know, he made the point as well. They both made the point in the interview where they said that the Commonwealth is like 60, 70 percent people of colour, and that where Megan could have been seen as a tool, you know, here I am, I'm part of this family, I look like you. And there's been critique, I think, lobbied at Megan in a broader sense that, you know, oh, well, she never called herself black before this. It's like, well, actually, firstly, she did. It, it was something that she wrote about on her own website. But also, I think sometimes when people say that stuff, you know, it's said about Beyonce as well, like, oh, Beyonce never owned her blackness, like early in her career. Well, again, let's look at the context for that, because we didn't want that. We as a society didn't encourage or foster those conversations. Yeah, I'd like to add something, because I was having the same conversation this morning, where people were like, oh, 
Now she wants to talk about race. Oh, not like she's Michelle Obama or she's Serena Williams. And I was thinking, you know, and also I think you've mentioned that point about Beyonce to me before. And it was such a surprise to me because Beyonce has always been black from Houston representing. I never felt like it's just really, really strange. And I feel that I feel there's an element of sexism there where you just want to discredit this person. You want to silence this person. So unless you are an activist or have been an activist for 20 years, you don't have the right to talk about your experience in regards to your race. What is it that you think people are saying there? I feel that it's sexism and trying to shut someone down and act like, oh, who are you to speak about this topic? You didn't speak about this before. You didn't speak about it before, so you can't speak about it now. Actually, you know what? That is such a great point because I don't know that I've ever fully thought about it, to be quite honest. It's not something that I think that I have been, oh, you know, what's the intent behind someone when they're making that? I just thought, you know, what's going on here? This is definitely sexism. And then also, I think when it comes to black women, black women have to be unimpeachable. Black women have to be Beyonce. Black women have to be Michelle Obama. Literally have to be Christ-like to be listened to. And I have a huge problem with that. I do not feel that we hold white women to the same standard. I think that I would agree with you. I actually, to kind of further that, because I've just been thinking as you've been speaking, it's like racism exists on this spectrum unless someone left a burning cross in your front yard, the micro equivalence, quote unquote, of racism or sexism is simply not acceptable. You can't say that Megan having pictures of her child depicted as a chimp are as offensive as people being lynched. She wasn't lynched. So why is she talking about racism? And Mm. I think that, you know, for white people, it is impossible for us to fully understand the mental toll that that takes to live with that day in, day out. And again, you know, Megan said herself that within the palace, people were saying, yeah, no, you're right. Like this is a disproportionate level of vindictiveness that you are experiencing, but there's nothing we can do about it. Exactly. I don't follow these things as closely as as maybe you do. But then they start saying, oh, but they're hosting all of these important people from the tabloids. Like Harry is like, please call the dogs off. Like, I know there's somebody that you can call to stop this. And they basically chose not to, which I just don't really understand. But I think perhaps it came from jealousy you know, when they say, you know, they were saying, oh, you're, you're everywhere. Like, please don't go out for lunch. And she's like, I'm, I haven't left in a month. You know, they're like, but you're everywhere. This is, you're so saturated in the media. And so I guess it's like, oh, well, if you want the attention, we're going to give you mm-hmm. the attention type of thing. So all in all, it was, um, like, I agree with you, like, so, so toxic. I would like to kind of get your point of view on something, though, because at the beginning of the interview, I did feel that like obviously I don't want to hate on Megan but I did feel like oh I could see the acting (laughs) at the beginning of the interview I was like you know when you say oh I didn't really know much about the royal family but you have been so intentional 
about you know the people that you hang out with creating your social circle you were friends with princess eugenie even before you met harry these things don't happen by accident they do not happen by accident people will say i want to live in this neighborhood i want my child to go to this school i want to work for this organization because these are the benefits that i see so i felt like for you to say i really kind of had no clue who prince harry was basically to summarize i felt was a bit disingenuous but then on the other hand i think it's so when you think about sexism again i think women come under so much fire if they say i want to marry well or if they're really clear about their intentions in that way i think people are incredibly critical so that could perhaps be why but based on what we know about megan's life that doesn't add up that's such a good point so i think the thing is as well it's possible to to like someone as a public figure and also criticize them because there were points at which I was like oh you know what she's just so twee is the word I thought you know when she's talking about the little mermaid and she was like oh she fell in love and married a prince and lost her voice now that for me was like oh cringe (laughs) yes cringe (laughs) she's like who watches uh, the little mermaid as an adult Okay. Like, what's the little mermaid even on? I don't not anymore. Not now Disney Plus is launched. They do not allow channels to just be airing their shows. But anyway, I digress. I think it's like one of those things where there is obviously a little bit of that just in her personality anyway, right? Like she clearly is one of those people who will say things like, Oh, I don't want to be unkind. So let's not talk about that person or let's not do that thing, which for me, I'm a little bit rougher around the edges. So like if one of my friends said that to me, I would not hesitate to be like, "Mm, okay, I didn't love that, that you just said that in this conversation. So I think that almost the tweeness is, is authentic in the sense that she clearly is just someone who is a little overly sweet in nature. But I agree that, you know, maybe the, the level of homework she clearly does in all other levels of her life, the research that she does with the charities that she works with or the launching of their foundation, her handwritten notes, you know, who she was as a person before she married into this family indicates that she clearly is someone who believes in doing the work behind the scenes. That said, when she said that Harry asked her, do you know how to curtsy when you're meeting the Queen? I could believe that you would think that that is just part of the fanfare that you don't have to do in private. And I think maybe the reason that I am primed to be like, oh no, of course she would curtsy to the queen is because I have lived in this side of Europe, this side of the UK, where the royals are spoken about often enough that you understand that there's a level of formality that happens behind the scenes as well. That said, if you are American, maybe if you haven't grown up with the same level of exposure, maybe you do think, listen, when I'm privately meeting my boyfriend's grandmother and she is the one who's crashing, right? Because that was the other thing that they were going for lunch. And then it was like, oh, the Queen's decided to come because she was nearby. I can believe that you might think, oh, okay, well, obviously there isn't the same level of formality in this instance, because this is something that's been decided on a whim. Yes, I bought that to a certain extent. Like, oh, it was a bit impromptu. I wasn't prepared. I mean, that's fair. That's normal. But I don't buy the, um, oh, I had no clue. 
I didn't buy that at all. So to draw you out on that, when you say that you didn't buy it at all, do you think that her intention was always to try and marry Royal? Or do you think that she was just someone who, once someone had said, listen, I'd actually like to set you up on a date, that she was like, okay, well, I'm going to go and do my due diligence? No, I think obviously when she was thinking about, you know, dating, she wanted to marry someone of a certain calibre. Mm, from a a certain background and I think that's fair Mm -hmm. maybe she thought that that was too much to say but that's fair that's okay it's okay to say I want to marry someone from a certain background and that's the reason because if you look at Megan's background she didn't go to school with any of these people Mm -hmm. okay this is not the environment that she's from and even being in Hollywood and like shooting in Toronto there's nothing particularly super elite about that where you would be mates with Princess Eugenie. Yes, I would. So, agree with that. so she's very intentional about the kind of people she wants to hang around with, the kind of life that she wants. And then I'm sure if she didn't realize anything about the royals, I'm sure her friend that wanted to introduce her to Harry had a clue. Someone mm-hmm. had a clue. Yeah, someone okay. had a clue. And I think, yeah, as you say, we are Megan the Grifter. That narrative is so pervasive now that it makes... In the UK, class is so big. I feel like that would jar people more than anything else. Like pretending you didn't know who the British royal family are. This is something that British people cannot forgive you for. Mm -hmm. Because it's literally the only jewel in the crown right now. It's all (laughs) this country has. So people just cannot abide that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that that is true. The level of not even ignorance it's more like it's feigned apathy right and we've said we said a couple of weeks ago that one of the things that seems to be unforgivable about Megan as well for a lot of her naysayers is that she didn't feel privileged to marry into this family and that somehow is completely unforgivable the thing is that but can I say something hmm. as well I think when you don't come from pedigree you know that's not the class that she was born into I think what's allowed Megan to rise is that she doesn't have that inferiority complex Megan does not walk into a room and think wow I'm so lucky to be in this room if she thought that she wouldn't have been able to cultivate the life that she has but the fact that she doesn't think that is also really unforgiving and I think it's more about people putting their own insecurities onto you Mm -hmm. so that's something that I'm really proud of her for because I don't think that people should be walking around and and feeling like oh my god I'm so lucky that you would even be with me I'm so lucky that you would even talk to me and people think that outside of this context you know people do feel like oh my gosh I'm so lucky to be with you what are you talking about I better not put a foot wrong Mm. so that I don't like break the spell there was the the bit that I wanted to talk about because this has been, this is so entrenched in the media narrative now, right? It's Megan as a bully, Megan as an aggressive black woman, Megan making Kate cry. God, I was so glad that Oprah asked this question. I felt like it showed a remarkable level of restraint on Megan's part that she didn't just go to town here. And I have an issue with how lazy I think Kate and William are. I thought that it was very forgiving of Megan to also be like, listen, maybe the reason that Kate didn't correct this media narrative is because she is 
facing the same level of kind of internal restraint as I was. But essentially, you know, a quick recap, I'm sure you're not listening to this podcast being like, oh, I don't know what that's about. Essentially, in the lead up to the wedding, there was all of this discussion that Kate had told Megan that the flower girls should be wearing tights. And Megan had said no, but had made Kate cry as a result of the aggression with which she said no. So then we find out that actually, Kate, the context is all correct and present. It's about tights. It's the lead up to the wedding. It's about the flower girls. But Kate is the one who makes Megan cry. Quote, unquote, makes, because, right, like, you know, obviously there are outlying factors there. Neither of them would have made the other one cry, but it's the emotion of the situation and da 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 And Megan says, you know what? This is so inarguable. And that's what I like about Megan as well, that when she says something, she often brings the receipts for it. It was so uninterpretable any other way, except that Kate made Megan cry, that Kate sent Megan flowers and a note to apologize. So Kate knew that she had made Megan cry as well. And then you've got seven, eight months after this whole thing's happened, the stories start coming out about Megan bullying her new sister-in-law. Yeah, and that's just a classic trope. Black female, angry, bully, Kate, white female, fragile, fragile, <laughs> fragile accommodating, you know, and then here's this sort of bully, uh, upstart, etc. So I think with all of that, it's so, I missed this when it was in the press. It flew over my head completely. But I think what's so cringe, I guess, about the British press, that it's just so trope after trope after trope after trope after trope. Like people are not even saying anything new or intelligent. So if you think about when that BBC um, commentator said that Archie's a monkey or said that the, her child will look like a monkey or something like that. And then something like this about, you know, Megan making Kate cry. It's all so blah because it's, I mean, it's damaging, but it's just so predictable. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that was addressed too, if that was like a really, really big thing. But I think it's very, very sad because if you, like you would expect, so basically one of the royal commentators came out and said, in regards to that comment that was made about their baby skin tone or what their skin tone could have been, a royal commentator came out and said it wasn't uh, the queen or the duke that made that comment. So they basically acknowledged that the comment was made. And so if it wasn't the prince and it wasn't the duke, right, that means it's come from like Prince Charles or perhaps Will or Kate. We don't know 100%. But the fact that that could potentially come from a younger member of the royal family Mm-hmm. That's why I say these people don't want to grow. This is it. So just as a final note on the the Megan and Kate story, way back last year, I think, when Megan and Harry first noted that or first said that they were going to be leaving or stepping back, I said that there was a story in the press refuting the fact that Kate had Botox. So some story had been written about, oh, Kate goes to this clinic, she gets baby Botox. Clarify it. I get Botox. I don't think there's an issue with the Botox aspect, right? But Kate is supposed to be our supernatural future, future queen consort. A statement was released from like Kensington House being like, the Duchess Kate has never had Botox. You know, this isn't something that she does. These allegations, allegations, I don't know if that was the word that was used, but like, let's run with it. These allegations are totally false. So we are able to release statements about the minutiae, 
we are going to treat a story about baby Botox so seriously that it warrants an official statement, but we are not going to correct the narrative. And now we know why, right? Like I said, I read the the royal blogs. I read all of this kind of stuff. We know why the repost, when Kensington House was correcting this story, it was so vague. When the Tatler piece came out about Kate Middleton, at the end of last year, towards the end of last year, and they were saying, oh, you know, the the crying over tights thing never happened. Well, we know why there was no more detail. It was because that whole time Kate Middleton knew that she was the person who had made Meghan cry and couldn't give any more details without exposing herself in that instance as the instigator or as the bully. Mm. Yeah, but like you said, when it comes to the minutiae, people want to make statements. But when it comes to all the accusations, all the weird things that have been said about um, Harry and Meghan, like, let's say you don't like Meghan and you feel that she is a um, ruthless social climber, as Piers Morgan called her this morning. Okay, fine, whatever. But what about Harry? Why don't you want to protect Harry? Yeah, it's a bit, I think when, uh, you know, Megan's part of the interview, you know, interesting, but it was Harry's part of the interview for me that was really heartbreaking, you know, and when he said that if I didn't have what my mum left me, or if we did not have what my mother left me, we would have nothing. Like, obviously nothing is relative, but it's like, wow, they really cut you off. This is it as well, because I know that so much of the response is going to be like, oh, millions in the bank is nothing, is it? You know, this kind of thing. But that's not the point. We live different lives. Like Mm -hmm. the cost of security alone, which was clearly necessary, the volume of death threats, and they both said this, the volume of death threats was completely disproportionate. And the reason why I think the security piece is important is because we saw what happened to Princess Diana. So she did not have security from Scotland Yard. She had like her own like bodyguard. And the fact that she didn't have security from Scotland Yard really put her at risk. And so when someone says, oh, we're taking away your security in this context, it really is a death threat in a sense. Totally. Totally. You know the historic context of so intense. what it potentially means. And yeah. you would throw that around as a whim, like bad enough that there was all of this discussion around um, Archie not being named as a prince. And I liked, again, that Oprah drew Meghan out on this. So Meghan Markle says uh, there was all of this discussion, again, about how dark Archie's skin tone is going to be. But a decision was made even before he was born that he wasn't going to be a prince. And so by virtue of him not being a prince, He's not going to receive any security. And Oprah says, well, was it important to you that he was a prince? And I liked Megan's response because, you know, obviously so much of the critique levied at her is that she is a grifter. She's an upstart. She's money hungry. She's title obsessed. And she says basically, well, yeah, I wanted my child to have the same treatment that all of the other grandchildren of the future king of England getting and why not and why not and that's it you know when people talk about like race and stuff like that all people want is to have the same treatment as everybody else they're not saying treat me better but they're saying what Megan is saying oh it's a bit weird that my child wouldn't be afforded 
the same uh, title or the same accommodations as their cousins. And why is that? Tell me why that is, guys. Like, she's just saying, because what she said was, just tell us, like, just say what it is. You know, if he's not going to have a title because of X reason, just really be clear that, okay, he's not going to get this title. And because he doesn't have this title, we don't get further protection. Totally. It's like that clip. Have you seen it where it's the news panel? I can't remember. I can't name anyone in it. It's American. And two of the white guys are like, you know, well, what's annoying is that you've got all of these rappers, you know, saying the N word. And then someone like me can't say it. And the black guy on the panel goes, so say it, say it right now. And they're like, well, no, you, you know that I can't, you know that I can't do that. And he's like, no, go ahead. I'm allowing you to say it. And that's what Megan did. She was like, but just say why he's not a prince. Just say it. Say it. Tell me. And especially if my unborn child is already receiving death threats and you are making the active decision to not name him a prince and then saying, well, because he's not a prince, he actually doesn't get security. Oh, okay. So say it. (laughs) Yeah. And there was an interview on Sky, actually. um, And I think it was over like the weekend. And Kelechi, who's basically like a social media personality, uh, she was saying how, you know what, I'm actually quite happy how all of this has played out. And her point was she's happy how it's played out because it just shows how redundant the monarchy is. But I think for me, I'm happy how this has played out because I really feel it just shows where we are as a country. You know, I think the UK has really shown its ass, unfortunately. A lot of people who are not from the UK are really supportive of Harry and Meghan's decision. And so I'm happy that this has happened because I think it's really important for us to be able to look in the mirror. But for me, I look at it as a, oh, we're looking in the mirror. But I think a lot of other people or a lot of British people still feel, you know, people say things like, I don't mind Harry and Meghan leaving, but I just feel they didn't do it in a right way. Someone said that to me this morning. And I said, oh, so when you say that they did not do it in a right way, what would have been your preferred way? And then the person said, oh, I don't want to talk about it anyway. Yeah, I'm, uh, whatever. What is the preferred way? Also off the back of that, because this is in a similar vein, right? When people say, I thought they wanted privacy. Oh, why oh, yeah. are you giving interviews every two minutes? And I keep seeing this and hearing this said, and I'm like, what could you name over the past year that they've done? She wrote an op-ed for the New York Times and they've done this interview with Oprah. Like, I'm I'm right, right? I'm 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 genuinely asking mm-hmm. you that question as well here. Could you name another interview that they've done? They've obviously done things with their various charitable patronages, and they've shown up in Zoom calls with various organizations that they're working with, and they've volunteered. But how many interviews have oh they've done the James Corden thing as well, right? So knowing that that happened also in the past two weeks. What are you talking about when you say that, I thought they wanted privacy, why are they everywhere? Yeah, but they do do a lot. For people that want privacy, like you don't need to go onto the Oprah Winfrey show and air out your whole life. But I do also think that after four years of this, I would be of the mentality that, yeah, I am going to set the record straight. Yeah, I would. I would for sure, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's absolutely within their rights for them to set the record straight and 
power to them. So I absolutely mm-hmm. support them. But I do understand when people say, oh, but I thought you wanted privacy because you can be private. Like you don't necessarily need to go and do this like Oprah interview. Like you can be private and start your new life. But I also do think that they have towed, I I fall on the side where I think they've actually towed the line of having privacy. We didn't know that she was pregnant until they told us that she was pregnant. We didn't know that she had a miscarriage until they told us that she had a miscarriage. So I think that the, the important thing with privacy and what people kind of deliberately misunderstand, I feel at times this point, privacy is me dictating what I'm allowed to share. It's not you having open access to my life. And that's the important differentiator because she was a public figure before this. And yeah, okay, there wasn't the same amount of interest in her life, but she earned her own paycheck. She, you know, this was the other thing, sorry, just as an aside, because I've just remembered this part, but when the argument was made, well, maybe she could just continue working as an actress because it would save money. But that was strange. That was strange did not get that part one of the most powerful things that was said in the interview is when Megan said I've lost my father I lost my baby and that was when you know she said that so much has been lost mm-hmm. and I was just like oh that really hit hard and in that same sentence she said and I nearly lost my name because they removed her name from Archie's birth certificate. Well, I don't get that. Can you explain that, Paul? How could they do that? I don't know, but they did. So my understanding is that she is... Is she named as just the Duchess of Sussex or something like that? So they removed her name, Rachel Meghan Markle, from Archie's birth certificate and said that it was like a protocol issue, basically. And so then it's tried to be like brought up because her occupation on the birth certificate was princess of the realm, because that is Harry's occupation. That's Kate Middleton's occupation. That's Prince William's occupation. So her name was removed, but her title remained. And the idea that the media were trying to push then was look at how title obsessed she is. She only wants her title on her son's birth certificate. And that's when she issued a statement. She said, why would I ever want to remove my name from my child's birth certificate? If nothing else, the issues that that presents, obviously I know that you can say they're famous, they can do what they want, da 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 The issues that that presents from like a travel perspective, she is not named as... Yeah, but she's not traveling in the same way. She did, but they did also say that her passport would be taken off her. Yeah, the passports and everything were taken. But I I felt it was good that in the beginning of the uh, interview, she really kind of set that stage where maybe from her perspective, prior to marrying into the family, she thought, wow, this is just another rich, powerful, famous family. You know, and she had been rubbing shoulders with rich, powerful people who had accepted her. Mm -hmm. So I think she thought, if I put my best foot forward, if I commit to this and and what they want they're gonna love me they're gonna accept me because that has been what she had experienced prior but it became really clear that it's a completely different ball game and even those of us who are British we know it's a completely different ball game but you would never understand how much of a different ball game it is until you marry in 
to the family because even Princess Diana, you know, she said it. She was very naive, you know. She's from an aristocratic background and she's very naive. She thinks that, oh, you know, my husband's going to love me. No, girl. Nope. And also that that love will be enough because obviously we can see that Charles did not love he wasn't prepared to go to bat for diana right harry and megan if you say anything else about them they are clearly infatuated with each other that is a really genuine love that doesn't get acknowledged enough right like but also i felt so sad for harry when he said you know when they were talking about the mental health issues and oprah asked you know if they'd sought help from the family and he said he felt a bit ashamed to kind of talk to them about it. And when you, you know, and I and I can see why the relationship that he has with Megan could end up taking precedent in his life because it doesn't seem like he had that connection or love from anyone else mm-hmm. in the family. I'm so glad you said that. I actually had written it down as one of the things that I wanted to touch on. Yeah, I was I was ashamed to admit that Megan needed help. And I think that that's so powerful and it's actually really important in the discussion around mental health mm-hmm. because there is a shame and stigma that goes hand in hand with mental health that we think that we've eradicated. And I think that it was important that he is able to acknowledge this. This is a part of his broader journey, right? And it really importantly demonstrates the difference between talking about something academically and lived experience and the marriage that needs to happen between those two. Because Heads Together is a royal initiative. That that he and William and Kate have been talking about for years now. And so I thought that it was actually really meaningful for him to say in the context of this broader landscape, He'd been talking about mental health and he'd been saying, yeah, I went for therapy after my mum died. It was clear that, you know, I needed this. I was very angry. I needed that support. But actually, when it came down to it and his wife was like, I am suicidal. There was a, a stigma for him there. And that isn't maybe necessarily something that's flattering to say, but it's true. Yeah, it's true. And I just think that we should be really kind of welcoming that level of vulnerability. Yeah. We should be welcoming it. We should be like protecting it, but basically we're just really kind of rubbishing it. All the British press is treating it in a very, um, I don't want to say unkind way, but like it's, it's horrific what's happening in the UK. It was so outrageous when Megan said, I went to human resources. Right. <laughs> Who is human resources? They have a HR department. Yeah, Buckingham Palace. Because yeah, but who is who's their, who's their HR? Well, this is the thing. I didn't know that there was an HR department. But ironically, when all of these bullying allegations have been coming out before this interview is supposed to air, right? They're like, yeah, well, you know, several complaints were filed with HR. So you're telling me so little was done about these bullying allegations that have been sent to HR about Meghan Markle, that when Meghan Markle also went to HR and said... I need to be checked into a mental health facility. I'm not well. That they were like, that's so crazy. I wish we could help. See you later. Like, they didn't even mention to her 
listen, complaints have been made about you. They said to her, you are not a paid member of the royal family, so there's nothing we can do. Let yourself oh. out. Oh, wow. Because um, I didn't hear what the, re- the response was. But when she said, you know, I went to HR, we all know we go to HR when you cannot take it anymore. Like HR is the last resort. HR happens after you've had a mental breakdown in the loo and you've been crying, probably had a breakdown in front of your boss, spoken mm-hmm. to a few mates. It's when you literally see no way forward. That's when you go to HR. So Yes, there were so many things that they said that were, you know, really powerful. But for me, that shows that a person is in crisis. Well, the thing is as well, right, however you feel about Meghan Markle, and if you don't like her, there's nothing that you will have heard in this episode that will make you think, oh, yeah, actually, I'm warming to her, I'm coming round. But she's apparently Schrodinger's duchess. So she was a money-grabbing upstart. She wanted a title. She wanted to marry a prince. But she was also happy to... It was always her plan to make Harry leave the royal family. It can't be both. Okay? She is not both alive and dead in this box. Yeah. It can't be both. And also, you know, I think it's important for us to talk about this topic, not because of like, you know, being obsessed with Meghan and Harry. I'm actually... I don't follow them outside of this story. But I just think in terms of society and everything that's gone on, you know, everything that happened with Black Lives Matter last summer, everything that's just going on with the world, it's interesting to see a story like this play out at that level. Mm -hmm. I think you rarely have it because at that level, you don't really have diversity. (laughs) So you never really have a story like this playing out. And so I think it talks so much about class I think it talks so much about race I think it talks so much about institutions and because of Harry and Meghan conversations around the future of the monarchy are happening in the UK because people were not really critically engaging with the monarchy in that way in the UK but this is the first time that I hear people talking about that and so that's why I think it's an it's an important conversation to have I'm pretty neutral about the royal family I'm not against them but I wouldn't say I'm particularly for them I think it's just vibes like (laughs) I like the the pomp the pageantry and and all of that obviously I'm a very very big fan of of the crown but it's kind of making me think what does the future of the monarchy look like that critical engagement that you mentioned is vital and I have to say that I have had a real turnabout on my feelings towards the royal family Largely because of how this whole thing has has rolled out, largely because of how it's taken place. I think that no one is beyond reproach. We should be able to criticize things about society and whether they're working or not working. And I think that what for me is the crux on which this whole thing hinges really is that we are supposed to not be criticizing the royal family, in their treating of a real human woman because the queen was anointed by God to lead. And you think that that is a good enough reason for us to have subjected Meghan Markle to the level of vitriol. And people will go, well, Kate Middleton had to put up the same thing. She was called Weighty Katie in the press as well for 10 years. Guess what? That wasn't okay either. I'm not saying it to be like, 
Megan's treatment was worse than Kate, though objectively it was. I am saying that this institution, this monarchy, is grounded in nothing. It is made up. And whatever you feel about our elected government, because the Tory government in the UK is a joke as well, but they are elected. I am just supposed to be curtsying to an old woman who was anointed by God with sacred oil 70 years ago. And yeah, pretty, <laughs> pretty much, right? Yeah, pretty much. Um, but I did want to ask your opinion on one thing before we wrap up. So when Megan said that they had their wedding ceremony three days before the actual main wedding, apparently people are really annoyed by this. So on Good Morning Britain, uh, this royal commentator was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. I can't believe this happened. British people will be so upset. Now, for me, it didn't upset me because I had my civil... I had two weddings before my main wedding, Mm -hmm. um, two smaller weddings before my main wedding. So I thought that was quite normal. But apparently this is like a big issue. I'm so perplexed by that. You know what? I saw one guy and I wish I'd made note of his name because he is like, he's got his OBE. So that probably tells you everything you need to know. I saw him on Twitter saying she's probably so stupid that she didn't realize that that was just the rehearsal. I, I, what, what's wrong with you? What is in your heart? We had a very small wedding. My husband and I only had about like 22 guests in total for our wedding, basically just immediate family. And we got married in Islington Town Hall. And I often say that my favorite part of that day was after he and I had both separately arrived, they brought us upstairs into the room where the ceremony was going to take place. And they just chatted to us for a while. They got us like a cup of tea Charles was very nervous. I was not that nervous. (laughs) So they were like getting him some water to calm his nerves. And I remember thinking, God, this is so lovely. Like I liked our wedding day. I thought it was special. I thought it was like, but there was a level of stress that went into it because there were other people there. And I can't even imagine what that's like if it's being literally broadcast globally. And I remember thinking, God, I wish this part could go on for a little bit longer where it's just the two of us, where we're just like, present and aware of the vows that we are making to one another why would it be an issue that they were thinking well let's just get married just us two and the archbishop like allow it why this is the thing I think it speaks to and you've touched on this already the mental ownership that we believe we have of Harry which to a degree is fair because it's taxpayer money whatever you know there's a degree of culpability there but he is still a human being at the end of the day. They are allowed to do things in private. And you still got your public ceremony. Do you genuinely feel cheated of the fact that they had not shared that super intimate moment with you first? I think it's common, though. I haven't looked into it, but I do think that having a smaller ceremony before, I think it's common. Yeah. Because if it wasn't common, it would not have happened. My brother and um, his wife did it. No, I mean, even in in the royal context. Oh, right. Okay, sorry. I thought you meant in general. That yeah, I, I think it's common because anything can happen in the public ceremony, <sighs> right? So I don't think it's uncommon mm-hmm. for royals to have like a small wedding or something in private before you have something in the public. And then I also have, whether it's common or not, I have no issue with people saying, you know, I would like us to have something for both of us because they're not reading out their personal vows in the official ceremony. 
but I think for me, my overall sort of point of view on that interview is that considering they did hold back, it was quite shocking and you just really felt the hurt. Yes. Especially from Harry. I think what will be interesting is, as we said, it airs tonight in, it's already aired in Australia and it will be airing tonight in the UK. Mm. I will be interested to see as the week goes on what the response is, how Piers Morgan will speak, knowing that her mental health was in such a negative space. Can you continue to stoke that that fire? Yes. You like, can. I think that I think that you're right, and I think that he will. But again, what I think it comes down to is this whole. And I said this to you over text over the last few days. This is a Caroline Flack situation waiting to happen, where once the worst has occurred, and God forbid that it does, everyone will be tweeting hashtag Be Kind. But in the moments leading up to the worst of this, people were completely complicit. People are completely complicit and it does make me think because, you know, we've spoken about Princess Diana before because we did a special on The Crown. We were too young to tune into the temperament or the sentiment of the British public when Diana was going through everything that she was going through. But looking at what's happening with Harry and Meghan, I could imagine that, you know, it was pretty similar. Like, I I don't think the press made allowances for Diana. But then after Diana passes away, everybody's in shock the people's princess the people's princess you know all of that and so I think the real issue with the situation with the royal family is that the royal family already did this whole mess with princess Diana yes so basically there's historical context for this there is you know there's precedent and what they have demonstrated is that they don't want to learn listen we could talk about this all day I could literally continue talking about it for another two hours find us on clubhouse Let's put yeah. up a room. Let's oh, let's do a clubhouse. Let's do a clubhouse on this. Honestly, this is where it needs to be at. Find us on Instagram. Find us on Clubhouse. Connect with us. Let us know your thoughts. Let us know if you're watching. And thank you guys for listening. Bye. Bye.